Welcome back to the Center in the City podcast. I am so glad you are here. My name is Wade Brill and I am the host. Today we have an amazing guest for so many reasons. I am so excited to have Sandra Chapman, aka Chap, with us on the podcast. Chap is not just an amazing, badass person who's doing great work in this world, but Chap was also my first teacher. Yes, you heard that right. Chap was my teacher when I was three years old when attending Bing Street School of Children in New York City, one of my most favorite places in the whole entire world. And Chap was so foundational to my education as this little being in the world. And it just is beyond heartwarming to have her on the podcast to share more knowledge as an adult and how we can think and explore our identities and have permission to own our identities in our workplaces. A little bit about Chap. She is the CEO of Chap Equity, an organization rooted in collaboration, research, and dialogue. Chap is also the lead on social identity development for the Great First Eight Curriculum Project. Chap has also co-authored many books like Biasy Starts Early, Let's Start Now, Developing an Anti-Racist, Anti-Bias Book Collection for Infants and Toddlers and also the co-author of Black Girl on the Playground. You can check out more of Chap's amazing bio and credentials in the show notes. Chap shares so much wisdom and knowledge around this topic of exploring our identities and bringing permission to bring our identities into the workplace and how do we get to bring so many identities in the workplace because it's kind of like bumper cars. They're obviously going to bump and crash and we have to learn how to interact with one another, repair, and work together because diversity is important and diversity is what our world is about. Before we get into today's conversation, I wanted to share an exciting opportunity that's coming up this winter. On December 1st, I am co-facilitating a workshop called The Compassionate Leader skills AI can't teach us. This is going to be such an amazing all-day workshop training that helps us explore how we can be more of a compassionate leader, not only for ourselves, but for our communities, for our teams, for each other. So we'll explore topics like mindfulness, emotional regulation, conflict resolution, really thinking about how as a leader, we can embody more compassion. And when we do that, have more capacity to keep showing up as a leader, to keep having the vision, to keep holding the space, to have resiliency, to keep creating big impact in this world from a micro and a macro perspective. So if you are curious to learn more, check out the show notes, Feel free to reach out if you have questions. This is not to be missed. So if you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting, check it out, reach out, and I hope to see you there. Now let's settle in for this episode and let's get centered. Chap, welcome to the Center in the City podcast. 
so glad to be here with you, Wade. So glad. I'd love to hear what right now is your current favorite practice that keeps you centered or supports you coming back to your center, whatever that means to you. So today's Monday, and it's a good day to ask that question because um, a couple of years ago, one of the women that I was doing um, a lot of equity work with, traveling for a client and uh, doing a, a time break, she said, do you mind? I want to take a moment to meditate. And I was like, can I join you? She's like, of course. So there in my hotel room, we're you know getting ready to plan a session. And we just took a moment to meditate and some powerful things came up for me. And I asked if I could do that more regularly with her. At the time she was living in Los Angeles, uh, she since has moved uh, to another location, but we have continued for the last, I guess, four years to meditate once a week um, on, on Monday mornings. And, you know, we set the, we set our intentions, we catch up with each other, we set our intentions, and then uh, we meditate. And I, I think that the, that's one of the most like concrete practices that reminds me and sets the tone for the week of like, what are you, what are you grounding yourself in? Uh, what's really important? Uh, what's essential? Um, what do you need? Um, so things like that. And then I have other practices that ground me uh, that are spiritual practices um, from, from my upbringing. So literally, I almost always have a, a candle that I'm lighting. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, I feel so connected. I feel so connected. That's so great. We're both showing uh, each other our candles. Does yours have a scent? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mine um, too. Yeah, yes. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And then uh, powerful images and powerful words. So um, recently had a, a breakup, um, a separation and in the middle of, you know, getting a divorce. And one of the things that I realized something's missing for me, what was missing? What do I need was joy. So the birthday celebration I had was called laughter and joy. I'm in my living room kitchen area at home now, and I'm literally looking at this big plaque called Joy that I hung up in my uh, in my kitchen. Um, and I want to remind myself that being joyful is an uh, is an action I can take. Right, that joy isn't just something that exists in an absence. Like I literally have to motivate myself to find that. So that plus I'm surrounded by beautiful plants in my home that I take care of and taking care of those plants also brings me a lot of joy thinking about the things that I uh, have around me. So like little things like literally this is a little uh, rock, you know, silver rock called healing, you know, and it's dirty. I don't have no idea where it got the dirt from, but I just love that it is there and it's healing and it's dirty and it's present and it's within reach. So Mindfulness Mondays, scents and candles, images and words that just remind me that, you know, this is a journey that I'm on and that there's greatness on its way. Oof, so many things you just shared, like hit me so deeply of one, just even recognizing in your Monday mindfulness practice, asking yourself certain questions. And just even that question of like, what do you need right now? 
and how grounding and acknowledging that is for ourselves. I do that too, especially when I notice I'm on autopilot or I'm just feeling really overwhelmed. It's just a really helpful question to just settle all of the noise and really come back to like, okay, what is what does this inside person need? Is it a hug? Is it a glass of water? Is it more sleep? Is it, you know, to clear some energy with somebody? So that is powerful. And I am also in the process of embodying more joy in my life. So I love that you shared that as well. And I was at a dance class this weekend and I had this like visceral embodied reminder of, oh yeah, like I can choose joy. And sometimes it's so hard to remember that when shit gets really dark or hard or heavy, it's like, how can we find that daily joy, those daily delights? I love that you said that I can choose joy because that was the thing that I realized that being in a space where joy wasn't there is because I wasn't choosing it, right? I wasn't centering it. I wasn't prioritizing it. I wasn't seeking the multiple opportunities that are really right there. And when I find for myself, because I can only speak from my lived experience, is that when I am I have learned that when I'm in my darkest places in my head or in my heart or even in the physical body, because I have lots of arthritis, a lot of pain issues, that when I'm in the darkest place, it is when I laugh, um, dance, move, sing, hug, touch, right? Or look at one of these, you know, various different things, taking care of my plants, right? When I'm actively doing something, that brings joy to my you know, serotonin and brings me all the good feelings that that's a choice I've made, but it, I had to get out of the other choice that I was making, which was to stay in that sadness or stay in the lonely or stay in the confused. I was like, I don't want to be there. It doesn't feel good. Right. <laughs> I, don't like it. I don't like it. You know, so I want to get out of that. So I have to do something differently. Otherwise I can, get, it can be really hard to right, to get stuck in there and not know how to get out. Totally. And we can keep saying, I don't want that. I don't want that. But then we're still putting our attention on the things we don't want versus being like, oh, let me call in. Let me embody. Let me breathe. Let me find. Let me connect a joy. And it's sometimes not even for me, I've noticed it's not even just my joy, but I can feel joy if I, you know, watch kids play in a playground, you know, or watch something funny and, and allow that you know, energy of joy to be contagious. So um, thank you for sharing all those practices with us. I'm excited to talk about as we continue this exploration this month of mental health awareness and explore, you know, how do we get to bring our identities to the workplace? And I feel like there's this whole movement post-pandemic, which I'm very passionate about and why I love working with corporate over the last few years is I feel like there's more permission to bring our human self to the workplace. During the pandemic, when people got to see each other's inside of their homes, the messiness, the the kids running around, the noises, right? The imperfection, it was just this permission like, oh yeah, we're all human. So I'm curious to even just hear, Chap, like how how do you I how do you define identity? Mm. 
So great question. And um, this is like my life's journey. <laughs> so one of the things that I say often to people I work with um, is that identity formation is a journey. It's not a destination, right? We don't get to a sense of completion because context is always changing, right? Um, how I feel and understand and think about myself um, matters if I was 10, growing up poor and in Spanish Harlem, surrounded by other Latinos, versus, you know, growing up now at 55 in, in you know, West Harlem, in a home I own with kid, grown adult kids. And so my context of myself changes, and that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? So that as I'm, you know, whether it's meditation or journaling, uh, the books that I read, the movies I watch, the documentaries to the fiction, whatever the case may be, how, what am I doing to expose myself to uh, a more complex or a deeper understanding of who I am? And I don't mean just my characteristics, so my personality, right? Those are those are important. Those are very important. Um, my hobbies are important, but my hobbies are shared by people of all kinds of identities. My uh, interest, my um, my uh, stance in the world, you know, might be shared by a whole bunch of people who don't look anything like me or don't have my lived experience. So, in addition to uh, to just looking at my personality, my interests, my hobbies, my skills, my passions, I also want to think about who am I in the context of my identities, my social identities, right? How has my gender been constructed? What did what was told to me about my gender and how have I made meaning of that? And meaning making is one of the most essential parts of our identity. If we don't make meaning from the identity we've been ascribed, that it's been ascribed to us or that we just assume like, oh, I'm just this, right? We don't make meaning of it. We can't tear it apart. We can't examine it so easily. And we can't then decide if that term or terms if the way that it, that identity is lived by that other person who shares that same language, if that's the way I want to see myself, right? You know, not all Latinas see themselves in the same way. Not all people who grew up in Spanish Harlem during the 1960s and 70s see their lives and experience the world the same way. Um, not all people with curly hair, with my body shape and my skin tone and my other identities that are my, my female characteristics, my racial and cultural characteristics, experience the world the way that I do. Because there are other things that I have around my identity that those folks might not have, right? So I, I'm, a, I'm a gendered being, I'm a racial being, cultural, I have a skin tone, I have a body shape. I have, uh, you know, religion and spirituality. I have a social class, uh, and all of those plus the many that I have not named uh, matter in how I show up in the world. Right? So that's one place, like how I operate day to day, how I navigate the world, but also how the world receives me, right? That I'm not in control of. I can't control how someone will respond to my presence in the world right? Um, that's for them to decide. But what I do know is that society has given so many of us information, and that information can be positive, right, about myself and about others, negative, 
it could be neutral. Like there's no judgment. There's it's just like just a fact, you know, that lives in in isolation of of a value or an evaluation. But I can guarantee you put a hundred people in my home, and if they could fit in my home, <laughs> and um, and you were to ask those hundred people, tell me what society says about the any of the groups that you belong to, and we will have a long list to share, right? Because we know what those stereotypes are. We know what the misinformation is about our group. And that sometimes informs how we show up in the workplace, how we show up in our communities, how we show up um, even within our own families, because that perspective can have um, a big uh, toll. It can take a big toll on uh, what um, groups we decide to join, uh, what neighborhoods we go to, um, what leadership positions we apply for, uh, what careers we engage in, right? And what I'm most, most invested in is a liberatory practice, right? So how can you go for a career choice because of personal agency interests and what you know about yourself? Not because of some, you know, um, story that you have convinced yourself, I'm not good at because I'm fill in the blank identity, right? Or I'm very good at because I'm fill in the blank identity, right? I don't want people to go for positions of power, whatever we might mean by that, because they feel like they're um, inherently or uh, without any action on their own should apply for that position, right? I want them to go for this position because they're interested in it. They can see change they can implement. Um, they have a, a passion to get better at the job that they're doing. Um, and that's not often what happens because what I'm talking about is the difference between the conscious brain, right? Having personal agency means that you're really acting from a place of consciousness around your positional power, your identity power, and where that, where you are with that. And then there's stuff that we don't know is even happening because that's our, our, it's happening at the unconscious level. So anyway. That's that's a whole lot I've just shared right there. <laughs> no, so so good, and I appreciate you breaking it down in the many layers. I'm curious. It sounds like as an individual, we have a personal responsibility to explore our own identity, to really think about how do we get to understand who I am in the context of self, and also in the relationship to society. But I'm also curious, why is it important to explore this concept of identity within the workplace? One of the things I just I just said was around identity power versus positional power. So you take any work context and often you will have people who have different kinds of positions, right? That whether in title or job description, um, the CEO, the director, the supervisor, the person who is at a position of power, right? They get to make decisions on behalf of others, on behalf of the organization, but on behalf of others. That has an impact on um, how other people, you know, engage in the workplace. And then you have others who don't have positional power, right? They can't make executive decisions on behalf of the organization. They can't, um, or they don't, or not are not encouraged, I should say, or also are not encouraged to um, make decisions about policies or practices. Right? So that's positional power, right? In on, on the, in the workplace, but coupled with that 
is our people's identities related to power as well. So just to make it real transparent, I'm going to personas, right? You could have a supervisor who is uh, Black, uh, disabled, um, of a particular, you know, older generation, uh, lesbian, um, who, you know, graduated with a uh, a degree uh, from a college that not a lot of people know, a local college, right, a city college, but they're a supervisor. So they have positional power, but they've got a lot of places where they don't have a lot of identity power. And perhaps one of the people that they employ, one of their supervisees doesn't have positional power. They are the supervisor, but they are white, maybe male, uh, cisgender, straight perhaps, um, and maybe comes from a background perhaps of wealth. Now, just because those people have those different identities, it doesn't mean they have to live into them, right? The white, male, straight, wealthy person doesn't have to be seen in a negative light because they have those identities. And many of those are often deemed as, you know, having more proximity to power. That person might have a whole host of reasons why they uh, don't feel powerful, right? And that's a, that's a reality and a truth we need to name. In the same way that that person who's the supervisor and all the identities I've named where that person may not have a whole lot of identity power could feel completely powerful in the workplace, right? Have all the control and knows it, knows that they are a badass and operates that way. But more likely what's happening, right, is you've got these different dynamics that happen in the workplace where people have different positionalities around who gets to, you know, make decisions and who doesn't. And then you have these identities and sometimes we respond to people's identities um, by what we've learned, right? About who has power and who doesn't, who should be listened to and who shouldn't be, who should be challenged, whose ideas can we question and who's not. And so as long as we're not operating from the identity we have, because that's not a healthy way of, of building cohesion and trust and loving relationships in the workplace. It's, we, we don't have to pin ourselves into an identity group and then say, well, because I'm marginalized, I need to operate and push my ideas. That's not what I'm saying. But in the absence, if we don't talk about it at all, if we don't challenge what we've learned about um, what society says about our identity groups in the workplace, we could fall into some dysfunction. We can fall into ways in which, uh, you know, that white male staff member um, is always challenging the black female supervisor. Right? The black female, you know, older supervisor um, doesn't uh, see opportunities for herself to advance in the workplace even more, doesn't maybe questions her own ideas. And it's fine to question your own idea if you don't think it's a good one, then ask other people in your community. But that's not what often happens. We Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't often happen. What I worry about, I'll put it this way. What I more worry about is that in the if we don't talk about how identity shows up in the workplace, we could be second guessing ourselves, um, uh, not acting from a place of personal agency, not engaging in liberatory practices 
um, and then having other, I would say, forces or dynamics in place, right? If we're, if we're not looking at um, male, female, uh, racial differences, class differences, learned behaviors, then there could be a different dynamic between that supervisor and their supervisee, right? And maybe what's at play there, what that external force is, is what have, what's learned about identity, um, what's learned about how the world is receiving somebody and how somebody lives their path. Mm. So it sounds like what ends up happening if we're not exploring and getting curious about our identities and our position, positional positions of power identities, that we can kind of fall into this trap of um, of of listening to like the sociological like norms of society versus really being connected to the human that's in front of us or the right. humans that we're interacting with. I can't live my, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm only in this body, right? I don't know what it's like to be male or white or to have grown up with wealth. I don't know that life, right? So this is the only way that I know to be myself. And I want folks to see all of the complexity of my identities, but not be hindered by them. And what we know from what the research shows and what the science says about how our minds work is we're not um, identity neutral, right? We don't look at people, and this is from the time we're infants, we don't look at people and just say, well, they're just a human being. I should treat them nicely. I should treat them with respect just because they're a human being. That's actually not what our brains are telling us because that's not what a lot of society has taught us. So it doesn't mean operate always from your identity doesn't like that actually is not a helpful framework to like always think of your identity but the flip side is also not true right to the absence of identity in the course of our relationship building and here's the beautiful uh maybe i would say um an option a beautiful option which would be because of my identity groups I have learned to operate in the world a particular way, and those are gifts. Those are strengths. That's a perspective. That's a unique way that I have learned to operate. And a healthy team, a healthy organization means that I get to live my whole self. I get to be divergent in my thinking. I get to be the person who has maybe learned some things around my gender, around how I take care of others. And, and that's okay. That works for me. But I'm not pigeonholed into being the caretaker because I'm a woman. I'm not pigeonholed into being the caretaker because now I'm a woman of a particular age, right? I don't want that to be the case for anybody, that they by default engage in behaviors in the workplace because of their learned behaviors. But if I find joy, talk about joy, if I find joy in being a caretaker, power to me, wonderful. But I don't want to be ascribed caretaker because I'm a woman. And I don't want caretaker to be seen as less valuable than decision maker, which is often not given to women. There are ways in which I want to be mindful of how my identity shows up, but not pretend that other people's identities also aren't present because they are. Yeah, and it's around what I'm hearing you share 
being able to have a conversation around our identities so that I am not assuming something about somebody else, right, on my team, but I'm actually hearing from them firsthand how they identify, the ways that they communicate maybe because of their identity, the ways that they think because of their identities, the ways that they interact with the work that we're doing because of, of their identity. And so I'm getting to learn these visible and invisible things that hopefully helps build more connection. Because sometimes what I see in the workplace is that, and I don't think, I think this has softened over the years, but that we're afraid to highlight our differences. That yeah. it's like, oh, let's just all pretend we're, you know, so like, yes, we're all human, right? We wanna connect to our humanness, but we also wanna highlight the unique differences that are connected to everybody's identity. And in, in fact, um we operate better in workplaces when we are diverse in lots of ways, not just uh, social identities and human diversity, but um, the way that I think, the way that I have learned to think, the way that I learned to solve problems, the way that I engage in relationship building. It's just unique to my, again, my identity, my lived experience and my practice, right? Some things are learned over time and really ingrained in like my psyche and how I show up in the world. And some things, some strategies I've learned to incorporate, right? I've learned like as a tip, I've learned from a book, I've learned from a, a particular skill from another human being. Um, and what I, what I now know, because also the research shows it to be true, is that that level of diversity of identity, um, problem solving is better for organizations because you get to um, more risk-taking, not less risk-taking. Right? There's a thing called groupthink. And if everybody's kind of the same around the table, right? we've learned to think the same way, we act the same way, we love the same things, we have the same similar identities, similar lived experiences, we don't take big risks. But when we have divergent ways of thinking, divergent lived experiences, cultural patterns, gender differences, whatever the case may be, we, we speak up more, we speak differently, we ask better questions, we wonder more, and we're more inquisitive. And that level of di divergence gets to better risk-taking in a healthy way. I don't mean like bad risk-taking, I mean like healthy risk-taking bigger questions, deeper reflections, um, which is productive for the team and productive for the organization as a whole. Right? Mm -hmm. we, so all, all kinds of organizations, there, there, there are many of these organizations are meant to solve big problems in the world, right? So we need big thinkers, not simple thinkers <laughs> to solve these big problems. I love that, yes. And when you think about companies that haven't yet, and I'm gonna say yet, they haven't yet hired you, Chaff, <laughs> to come in to create these conversations and this this kind of dialogue what are some ways that an individual mm -hmm. could not only explore their own identity maybe they already know their own layers of identity or at least some but how can they use their voice in the workplace to help them be seen in a different way than maybe what is on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. 
One of my go-tos is to think about sentence starters, thinking about uh, social scripts. So uh, part of the work I do and the research that I'm grounded in is something called intergroup anxiety. And intergroup anxiety is basically the stress response that can show up when people are about to engage in a conversation or an event or, or a dialogue across lines of difference. And people with historically dominant identities uh, experience intergroup anxiety one particular way, right? Their fear is, am I going to get perceived to be biased if I say this thing or do this thing? And then people with historically marginalized identities that have been stereotyped in the world, their worry is, um, am I going to experience bias again, right? So you've got this interplay of two people of different identities, and then the worry sets in. And one of the strategies that really helps when that is at play is called a behavioral script, a sc something I can say. I can learn to say this phrase or start my sentences a particular way when I'm worried that I'm going to be pigeonholed, seen as my identity, but not seen in my power, right? And it has been helpful to teach people, you know, about this concept, but then to engage them in some social script writing uh, so that when they're at that team meeting and they don't have a position of power, but they also don't have identity power, and they are wondering about how the conversations flow in and ideas are being generated and they would like to sort of get things to stop or, or interject, right? They could just, whether it's a raising hand culture or jumping in culture and just say, I'm wondering, I meant to learn to pause. I'm wondering, um, yeah, I'm wondering about whether or not, and then to sort of engage, right? So the I'm wondering pause is a, is a way to interrupt a conversation, but to put it on the person, right? Uh, on the person who's trying to interject, um, to sort of say, I have, I have a thought here. Uh, another one would be, um, you know, I'm not sure I understand the point of view you brought in. Um, do you mind repeating it again? Right. So it doesn't mean your idea is bad. It doesn't mean I disagree with your idea. I'm just having a hard time connecting to it. Right. Can you repeat it? And perhaps in the repeating of the idea, you hear it differently, it gets said differently, it gets explained differently, and suddenly you're having this whole different conversation just because you asked for a reset. Can we can we come back to what was said before? Or something that somebody said really was like, it's leaving me some, some I have some strong feelings about it, and I would like to really come back to the, the feeling I'm having related to what somebody just said. Um, I'm not sure I understand what's going on for me, but I'm having some feelings. Some way in which the you start the conversation to interject, to sort of get you know your, your stance or your, your words out there. Um, there's no uh, set of behavioral scripts, right? It really is context related. You know, whatever it is that you feel you need to do to interject. So that would be one one place where at the individual level, you know, you can begin to think, you know, whenever I'm in this meeting or in this session or working with my supervisor in this way, I tend to get stuck here. I don't know if I can share my thought, have an opinion. And so what are you going to say differently to get a new idea for yourself, right? It's really for how you're going to bring this to the table. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I love Kind of having some words that you can pull out of your pocket that help i love what you 
highlighted to notice that there's like anxiety when having these big conversations or maybe it doesn't even have to be big but can feel stretchy and to be able to kind of pull out these words offer the pause and then create some clarity or some context shifting well my other idea is an accountability partner now accountability partners or pods or there's so many different things to think about it to different ways to think about it having someone who you have really good relations with you trust them and you know that that's the person you tend to go to after the meeting is over to share how you really felt or to share your thoughts and to share your opinion right we all have those those people and how can you use that person to practice you know feeling into your power feeling into your voice feeling into your thoughts and your opinions um or perspectives so that you're practicing because the the power behind the social scripts really comes um, from feeling kind of clear and affirmed that what you're doing is helping you interject, helping you share your voice, helping you have something to say. And so the more you practice it, the easier it gets. Then you rely less on, you know, I'm going to pull this script out today and I'm going to pull that script out today. You rely less on that because now you have a whole body of things that you can do because you've been practicing with somebody else. And then the the other way that an accountability partner can work is um, that you meet with somebody who will be at the same meeting as you will be in and to say, I know what's coming up at that meeting and I wanted to bring up what happened at the last meeting and will you encourage me because I, I could use your support. And that can happen across lines of identity differences, right? Where you have maybe a person with not a lot of identity power who reaches out to somebody with identity power and says, I need you to serve as an ally to my voice just to get me started. Not I'm going to rely on you all the time, not that I need you to save me, but in this particular moment, I could use some help here. And I need you to stand up if you feel like my opinion matters to you as well. I need you to step in and say something so that I can then also move into that. I don't want to imply that we need saviors <laughs> everywhere. We don't. Right. And there's a difference between saviors and allies. To allies, knowing you have that like confidant, that confidence buddy who has your back, I can see giving so much internal power, internal confidence to be able to then say something and to speak up. And I actually like allyship because it's more action oriented, mm. right? I want, I need allies who are going to take their allyship seriously, mm. right? right. Who, will, who will Take stand it. up. Yeah. Right. When something maybe does happen that like creates an ouch or a, like a um, an internal ouch for our own identities maybe some gaslighting happened maybe some just ignorance maybe microaggressions whatever it might be mm -hmm. what are some ways that we can meet our own identity like we can meet our own ouches in those moments when society doesn't necessarily acknowledge it. Another one of the strands of work I love engaging in is helping people understand what microaggressions are, how identity harms can happen, and what's what's behind them or what's underneath them. And, and the work of uh, Dr. Daryl Wing Sue has been instrumental in my scholarship and learning as well. And one of the things that's, I think, an important part of the unpacking the microaggression for oneself, Dr. Sue calls it the sanity check. 
right? The sanity check is when you connect with somebody else of a similar or the same identity and say like, this thing just happened at this meeting. And I just need to check with you to make sure like, was that a microaggression? Was that an identity harm? Like, am I overthinking this? Or is that something that I should probably say something about? And I'm not talking, you know, report to the HR department, because there's a difference between an explicit discrimination versus a microaggression. And cumulative microaggressions cause a lot of harm in organizations, right? So if we could learn to address, like, what do I need for myself when I've been the recipient of a microaggression? And also, except this is about accountability, have organizations think, what can I do to minimize microaggressions or to get to repair and healing immediately after a microaggression has been delivered? Right? How can I organization or I leader of an organization instill in my community, microaggressions are not okay. And we need a path towards healing. And the path towards healing is you've got to name it, acknowledge it, um, and then process and, and, and think about, well, what are you going to do differently so that you don't do that thing again? And that's the institution, the organization, the leader of the team to leave room for that. But at the individual level, um, whether you are the deliverer of that harm or the recipient of that harm, um, there are some real good strategies to sort of mitigate for that harm constantly showing up in the workplace. Um, you know, acknowledging the, the fact that you have experienced something that is degrading, insulting, uh, makes you feel invisible is a huge step in the right direction, right? Uh, and again, it is very hard to ask somebody who has doesn't have identity power or positional power to always do the teaching and always bring it up when it happens. It's just too much of a burden. And that's why I think it's important for the organization and the leader to be ready to receive those, to have some mechanisms in place for processing them and for modeling what a, a, a really good conversation can look like that is a healing resolution conversation. If the leader is not willing to do that, there's how can we expect our staff and our colleagues to then engage in that same behavior? Um, so acknowledging is a huge step. Um, for the person who receives the harm, emphasizing what they need, right? Emphasizing that's like, you know what? I would like this to never be said again. I would like you to apologize. I would like you to um, do some learning about the stereotype you just assumed was true about me and my group. Like put your needs clearly in a statement so that the other person knows what, what are you asking me to do? And then the journey, right? Is really around people who delivered the harm to go do that learning. Right to listen to their colleague. Uh, this is not a moment of being like, are you gonna, you know, um, this is not about an accusation of your character. Right? Oftentimes, when we're brought in because you know I may have said something to somebody else and there's they it was a microaggression, and I'm like, I didn't. That's not what I meant. Uh, you know, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, it's not really the goal of this conversation. That's you know, you're you're being too sensitive. What I'm not, what I'm communicating there is, um, don't talk about my character, don't make any accusations in my way. But what I'm not doing is living with the fact that this person was harmed by something I said or did. 
And I'm not trying to heal that, right? So that doesn't center dignity in relationship. Oof, I mean, that just even hits me on a personal level of how we practice repair with just even our loved relationships outside of the workplace as well. Oh, Chap, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and these amazing insights on all the intricacies and layers of us navigating our identities in this world, in this very global world. Where can people learn more about you and stay connected? So I, I have a website, chapequity.com. And at chapequity.com, I have a resource page and I have some blogs that I've written, some resources uh, that are available. Um, and in that resource are list of, of references and books and ideas to continue this journey, continue the journey of learning about self. Um, and then also you can uh, contact me through the website as well. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chap. Yes. Thank you so much, Wade. It was such a pleasure to be in this very adult relationship with you. <laughs> oh, that conversation brought so much joy and wisdom to my own learning. So I hope you took away some really good nuggets as well. And I welcome you to think about this next week. What's one aspect of your identity that you want to claim or even just explore or label a little bit more. Maybe it's something you've known is always there, but you haven't really claimed it. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your body type. Maybe it's your religion or what socioeconomic status you grew up in. And I welcome you to just pause and notice what it feels like to label, own, and claim that part of your identity. How does it make you feel? How does it affect your relationships or how you interact with the people, the space, the things around you, even in your workplace? Thanks for being here. As always, your words, your feedback, reaching out, give me so much strength to keep creating these podcast episodes so i'm so grateful for them keep them coming leave a review like this podcast share it with somebody in your world that you know that would also value it until next time stay centered